podcast for high-achieving gay men who have gone to therapy, want to feel better, and get exactly what they want in life. I'm your host, Harvard Law-trained founder and life coach, Jonathan Herzog. Welcome back. We have Johan Hari, the author of three New York Times bestselling books and the executive producer of an Oscar-nominated movie, a part TV series. His books have been praised by the likes of Oprah and Elton John. His <laughs> latest book, Stolen Focus, Why You Can't Pay Attention, previous book was Lost Connections, Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and the Unexpected Solutions. His TED Talks, which you've definitely seen, have been viewed more than 80 million times. Johan Hari, it is a tremendous pleasure and delight to have you on today. Hey, Jonathan. I always feel like I shouldn't be um, introduced with the Oprah accolade because I know that my life peaked at the exact point that I was befriended by <laughs> Oprah and everything else will be a horrific anticlimax and downhill point from that. So I'm just like, oh. So we're going to talk to Johan Hari, whose life has reached its finest moment and is on a slow <laughs> decline from that point. I mean, I think there's like a rebirth. There's like a reinvention. <laughs> so... We, we, we celebrate you. After Oprah, there can be no rebirth. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So, Johan, many of our listeners will have met you first in your TED Talk on addiction, and where you talk about the opposite of addiction not being sobriety, it being human connection. Um, you've written extensively about addiction, depression, anxiety, and now attention. Could you offer, just to start, the kind of theses of each of your three big books thus far? Oh, fuck. That's a big question. Um, <laughs> they're not really theses. It's funny. All of, all of my books um, are about a mystery that I wanted to solve, right? So for me, I don't start with an argument. I don't start with a thesis. I'm not a scientist, although I was trained in the science, social sciences at Cambridge University. Uh, for me, um, you know, with Chasing the Scream, my first book, the mystery I wanted to solve was... Um, there were a lot of people I loved in my family who had addiction problems and someone I had been having a um, romantic relationship with and nothing I was doing was working and I wanted to understand, well, what causes addiction? What can you do to help people who've got addiction problems? Has anywhere in the world got it right on addiction? Because I could see that we sure as hell in the United States and in Britain we're not getting it right. Uh, so that was the mystery I wanted to solve there. And so I ended up going on this crazy big journey all over the world. Uh, you know, um, and getting to know a mad mixture of people from a, a trans crack dealer in Brooklyn, who's one of the wisest people I know, to a hitman for the deadliest Mexican drug cartel, who's definitely not one of the wisest people I know, to the only country to decriminalize all drugs with incredible results. Um, so that was the mystery there. Um, with with um, my book Lost Connections, which is about depression, the mystery was really, you know, at the time, so when the book came out, I was 40, I'm 43 now, to be a little bit younger, 39. And every year I've been alive, depression and anxiety had increased, right? And I wanted to understand, well, why? What's going on here? Why is it that with each year that passes, so many of us are finding it harder and harder to get through the day? And crucially, what can we actually do about depression and anxiety? Because what we're doing clearly isn't working if, it, if it's continuing to rise so much. And with my more recent book, Stolen Focus, you know, I noticed my own ability to pay attention was going to shit. I noticed this was happening to lots of people I knew. You know, for every one child who was identified with serious attention problems when I was uh, seven years old, there's now a hundred children who've been identified with that problem. Um, 
the average office worker now focuses on, on any one task for only three minutes. So I wanted to understand, okay, what's going on? Why are so many people struggling to focus? And how do we get our attention back? So for each of them, it wasn't so much a thesis. It's more, I then go on this journey. I interview hundreds of scientists who've studied it from all sorts of different angles. With each of these questions, I, I meet people who's, who are being affected by these things in one way or another, people who are pioneering very different approaches. And then sort of along the way, I kind of acquire a, a different way of thinking about it. But yeah, so it's not really an, I don't think of myself as really writing argument books, although certainly arguments and themes and, and ways of thinking about this emerge. They're more like, I think of myself as more like Columbo trying to solve the, the mystery than I do like a kind of person standing on a pedestal. Johan, I learned on Barry Weiss's podcast that you were gay, which gave me great delight. Oh, um, I, I never her. knew this. <laughs> yes. And I never knew this about you. And I knew, okay, we have to have you on. So um, what is your gay story, if you'd be open to telling us? You know, it's funny, I was, I was thinking about this. So in terms of my gay story, I'm gay. <laughs> so I always have been. I've always been very Period. happy with, yeah. with, with being gay. It's funny, I think I have a, a slightly different gay story to a lot of people. So a lot of people um, obviously it's changed over time. A lot of people my age, I think, their gay story is sort of realizing they were gay, having a big struggle with it, uh, coming out. You know, I, I grew up in a, an environment that was so insane. You know, there was a lot of addiction and mental illness in my family. You know, some people go, my family is crazy. And they mean, oh, my, I have an over-possessive mother or something. I mean, my family were crazy like the Chucky doll, right? Like, that. Like I grew up in such a mad environment that, like, it wasn't on the top 10 list of my concerns that I was gay, right? Um, and my parents were so mad and negligent and, and, and out of it that it, they didn't give a shit about me being gay. So, um, you know, I'm not saying there was no issues around it in that, you know, it was a more homophobic culture than it is now. But I think the main things I've taken from being gay actually have been unequivocally positive. I think one is just a great deal of joy in my life from, from being gay. You know, I once interviewed George Michael. I was about to say before he died, but obviously I didn't interview him after he died. And um, he said to me, I thought it was such a profound thing. He said, it's very hard to be proud of your sexuality until it's given you any joy. Uh, he mm. was talking about, I think he was in his early 30s when he first had a relationship with a Brazilian guy called, Anse if I remember rightly, his name was Anselmo. And this was a mm. moment when he became proud of his sexuality and it gave him a lot of joy. And I was very lucky, my sexuality gave me a lot of joy from when I was very young. Like I just mm. had some amazing experiences. So partly I got, it was a source of joy and a source of um, pleasure. And I don't just mean, obviously, partly sexual pleasure, but I don't just mean that. And then also, I think the other main thing I've taken from being gay has been an incredible sense of optimism about how things can change, how quickly things can change, how much things can change in ways that might seem implausible at first. You know, when I, um, I think a lot about my friend, uh, close friend of mine, Andrew Sullivan, a lot of your listeners will know his work. He's a uh, wonderful journalist and writer. Many of them will disagree with him, but I don't think many people would disagree that he's a great writer. And 
whenever I feel pessimistic about any big issue, I often think about Andrew. So in 1994, at the height of the AIDS crisis, before I knew him, Andrew was diagnosed as HIV positive at a time when that seemed like a death sentence. In fact, his best friend Patrick had just died of AIDS. So Andrew, who was only in his 30s, was like, OK, I've got a few years to live. What am I going to do? So he quit his job. He was the editor of the New Republic magazine. And he went to live in a place called Provincetown, basically to die. And he thought, well, before I die, I'm going to do one last thing. I'm going to write a book about a wild, crazy, utopian idea that no one has ever written a book about. And I'll never live to see this idea put into practice. Uh, no one alive today will live to see it put into practice, but maybe someone somewhere down the line will pick up this book and they'll find it and they'll, they'll think about this idea, right? Um, the idea that Andrew wrote the first book to advocate for was gay marriage. The book is called Virtually Normal. And when I, when I get down and you think, oh, fuck, we're up against such big forces, you know, we're up against so many, so many dark and disturbing trends. I tried to imagine going back in time to 1994 to Provincetown, to the little, uh, I could picture it, the little beach house he lived in, and saying to him, okay, Andrew, you're not gonna believe me, but 26 years from now, A, you'll be alive, that would have blown his mind, B, you'll be married to a man, a really hot man, because that'll be legal. Uh, and C, I'll be with you when the Supreme Court of the United States quotes this book you're writing now, when it makes it mandatory for every state in the United States to introduce equal marriage rights. And the next day, you'll be invited to a White House lit up in the colors of the rainbow flag uh, to have dinner with the president, to celebrate what you and so many other people have achieved. Oh, and by the way, that president, he's going to be black, right? That would have sounded like, it'd be like me going, so Jonathan, 26 years from now, a trans president is going to invite us to smoke crack with her in the Oval Office, right? It would just sound like ludicrous science fiction, right? But it happened. It happened because enough people, well, enough incredibly brave gay people fought for it and demanded it and in a spirit of love and compassion. And, and because many, many heterosexual people, in fact, a majority of heterosexual people opened their hearts, listened, changed. So I think the main thing I've taken from being gay, apart from just the joy of the relationships I've had the, and the friends it's led me to and the insights it's given me in all sorts of ways, for me, it's just a sense of like, however, you know, you basically have two millennia of gay people being burned, imprisoned, tormented. And then in a few generations, I don't want to dispute, we've still got challenges, of course, this massive edifice falls. So that to me is an incredible model. And it's a model done entirely in a spirit of peace and love, right? There's no, we didn't blow anything up. We didn't kill anyone. We didn't hurt anyone. We just appealed to people's sense of decency and love. Um, so yeah, I think those are the, that, that's my gay story. That was a very long answer, sorry. Yeah. How much of your experience of gayness would you say, because um, I've read some of your writings and, and heard you think about this, universalist versus kind of particular to being gay? Well, I think everyone, every human being has a unique experience. Um, but yeah, I mean, to a degree, I, I, there's experiences I share with other gay men of my generation and my age. 
Um, and there's obviously things that unite me with other gay people of different generations and things that unite me with gay people all over the world. But I always like to think of um, whenever anything, and, and a lot of being gay is, I, I've tried to define my relationship to being gay in a very positive way. It's, it's, it's a great thing, right? I, I, I like gay culture. I like the gay sense of humor. I like, you know, I, I like the way gay men are, right? And not all gay men are like that, but you know, we have a shared culture as gay men and, and I like that culture. I find it very congenial, but um, not every aspect of it, obviously, but over, overall, particularly the humor. Um, but I also think in terms of particularist versus universalist, I think a lot about the, 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 the 14th century Persian poet Rumi said, um, the wound is where the light enters you. Mm. And for me, I think insofar as being gay causes pain, and of course homophobia causes pain, and of course there's still a fair bit of homophobia in the world, um, in some parts of the world it's the dominant culture. Um, insofar as you experience pain, it can be the place where the light enters you. It can be the place where you understand, I don't want to romanticize it, it's awful, we want it to end, but it can be the thing that helps you to understand other people's pain. You know, James Baldwin, I think the greatest gay writer ever, probably the greatest writer ever, I mean, that's a high claim, but probably the greatest writer of the 20th century. He said, he said it better than this, I'm gonna get the words slightly wrong, but he said, you know, when I was young, I thought my pain made me unique. And then I read and I realized that the things that caused me pain were the things that connected me to every human being who has ever lived, right? And of course, not everyone experiences the pain of homophobia, but everyone experiences some pain, right? And so the pain that homophobia causes us is a thing that connects us to everyone who's alive, right? In some way, right? Um, and to me, the, the gay experience is, is one of the best models for, um, for showing the power of empathy. I mean, one of the things that most strikes me is how gay people really do understand our lives, right? How, sorry, how straight people really do understand what it is to be gay, right? Like how much my straight friends, how much the straight culture does understand us. I find kind of amazing and really encouraging actually, because we're living in a culture at the moment where people are being very encouraged to particularize their experiences only uh, only, uh, I don't know, only Asian Americans can write about the experience of being Asian American. And any, if you're a white person or a black person who wrote a, an Asian American character, you're somehow appropriating. And you know, I think, I think one of the greatest gay works of art in the last 20 years has been my friend John Donnelly's play, The Past, which is made into a movie with the same title. John is straight, right? How amazing, that a, what, what a triumph for our movement that we won so much that straight people can understand us so well that they could, that John could write such an amazing, cute, brilliantly observed play that's about a gay love affair and yet be heterosexual, right? So to me, that's not a loss. That's not someone taking anything away from us. That's a sign of our, our triumph. Hmm. A lot there. Um, <laughs> I want to tack on to the, the last piece there and zoom into courage, independence of mind and reinvention. So even just the last sentence you offered, where do, where do you get your courage from, right? So to not just go against the mainstream, the establishment institutional narrative, let's say of big pharma or the pathologizing hyper-therapeutic culture, 
around mental illness or diagnoses, right? What or the courage to have independence of mind and thought around, let's say, you just offered cultural appropriation, or uh, a non-gay person writing a uh, gay screenplay, like courage in the face of naysayers and critics. What what gives you or has given you that foundation? Um, you know, mainly it would just be that I would feel ridiculous if I felt sorry for myself. You know. My grandmothers who raised me when they were the age I am now, so I'm 43, one of my grandmothers was a working class woman in Scotland. Her husband had died. She had three children she was raising on her own. She worked three jobs. She would start at six o'clock in the morning by scrubbing toilets. Um, my other grandmother, who I also really loved and was an amazing woman, was a Swiss peasant woman living in a wooden farmhouse. Uh, when she was the age I am now, she wasn't allowed to vote. She wasn't allowed to have a bank account in her own name. It was legal for her husband to rape her. And I tried to imagine saying to my grandmothers, who were such amazing women, you know, I'm scared to say this because someone might criticize me on Twitter. They'd be like, what the fuck are you talking about? You know, like, it, it, it doesn't matter if people criticize you. You know, almost, I, I wouldn't say almost, everything worth saying attracted criticism. Right? Literally everything. Think of anyone in history you admire. They got criticized by lots of people. If you, if you, if you decide what you're going to say based on that external orientation of how will people respond, um, I just think if people in the past had thought like that, we would have had no progress, right? So I think, think do I believe this is right? Of course, you should listen to people. You should listen to feedback. But do I believe this to be true? Yes. Do I believe it to be worth saying? Yes. Okay, well then say it. You say it in a way that isn't gratuitously offensive to people, you wanna persuade people, but, but you, you, standing up for unpopular causes is how progress happens. It's also not self-evident. It's also not popular. It's also not even arguably mainstream and perversely not incentivized, right? But the Twitterism doesn't incentivize truth telling. No, it disincentivizes it. Think about think about the the uh, a kind of cliche on Twitter, which is read the room, right? I mean, my advice to everyone would be don't read the room. <laughs> Actually, that's the worst thing you can do. Imagine saying to Martin Luther King in 1963, "Read the room, Martin. They don't want to hear this. Right? I want to hear you say this, right?" Um, the, imagine saying to anyone in. Imagine saying to the early feminists. Imagine saying to Jermaine Greer or Eve Ensler, "Read the room." Men don't want to hear this. In fact, women don't want to hear it, a lot of women, right? Imagine saying to the, 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 the gay pioneers, the Mattachine Society, read the room, guys. The straight people don't want to hear this, okay? I mean, it, it's terrible advice. It's almost the worst possible advice. What it means is don't say what you think because majority opinion doesn't agree with you. Well, the great thing about plenty of criticisms of American and British society and plenty I have myself, but the great thing about our societies is precisely that that unpopular minorities get to speak, right? There's a reason it's the First Amendment, right? The, the people get to talk, and they get to assemble, and they get to say unpopular things. And throughout our history, there are, that is unbelievably rare in human history, by the way. It is the single most precious thing about the American experiment. It's unbelievably rare. In fact, in fact, almost completely anomalous. You know, if I think about the, his, my ancestors, 
you know, my, my dad was from Switzerland. People were being burned at the fucking stake in Switzerland for saying mild disagreements about Christianity not that long ago, right? A few hundred years ago. Um, so if you're given this unbelievably rich right, which was hard won, which people died for, um, to kind of go, well, I'm not going to use this unbelievably precious hard won right because I'm a little bit cowardly. To me, and you said, where does courage come from? I'm not a, I'm not a brave person. Um, I do know brave people. Um, and I think when I want to be more courageous or braver, I think about the examples of people I've known who were brave. You know, there's an amazing, my favorite statue in the world is opposite from the British Parliament. And there was a, uh, a feminist, woman, uh, an amazing woman called Millicent Fawcett who was fighting for women's rights early in the 20th century and was beaten and, I mean, you cannot imagine the violence that was wished upon these women. I mean, they were degraded in the most horrendous ways. Um, and um, she, Millicent Fawcett had this, this, this um, banner that she would hold up. And the banner says, courage calls to courage everywhere. When you see one person be brave, it makes far more people braver, right? And now there's this statue of her holding that banner. It says, courage calls to courage everywhere. I love the fact, by the way, it's right next to Winston Churchill's statue. And he's one of the people who had her fucking beaten and horsewhipped. And it would fuck him off nowhere, although he did many good things in his life as well, Winston Churchill. It would fuck him off no end to know that he is stuck for eternity next to this who prevailed, right? And of course, it's good that Winston Churchill prevailed in some other circumstances, not least against the Nazis, and that's partly the complexity of humanity. But um, but yeah, so, you know, and I've known some really brave, I've been incredibly lucky to know some really brave people. And I'll give you an example of one, if that's okay, Jonathan. So one of the most admirable people I've ever known. Um, so in the year 2000, um, in a part of Vancouver known as the downtown east side, there was a homeless guy named Bud Osborne who was living on the streets. And the downtown east side was um, a very notorious part of, of Vancouver. I've spent a lot of time there. It had a lot of chaotic street addiction, uh, people shooting in the neck in the street, kind of really quite extreme scenes. And Bud was living in the middle of this, and his friends were dying all around him. Um, of overdoses and and it was just awful. And um, one day Bud was walking down um, at the junction of Maine and Hastings for people who know Vancouver. And he bumped into someone who told him that his friend, his dear old friend Margaret had just died. And Bud was really knocked back. But he, and he thought, well, I can't just watch my friends die all around me. But he also thought, what can I do? As he would have put it, this is his words, not mine. I'm a homeless junkie, what can I do? Right, And um, then one day, Bud had an idea. At that, at that time, there was a really intense police crackdown on people with addiction problems on the downtown east side. So people would go and hide in order to shoot up. They would go behind dumpsters or, or in little crevices. Um, but that meant, obviously, if you're shooting up and you're hiding and you start to overdose, no one sees and you're, they just find your body a few hours later. So Bud had this idea. He gathered together a group of the homeless people with addiction problems and he said, got a plan. 
when we're not using, which is most of the time even for quite hardcore street addicts, why don't we just go and patrol the alleyways where we all know we shoot up, patrol the little crevices, the little dumpsters, and if we see someone overdosing, call an ambulance. It's just us, we won't get any officials involved, we'll just do this. And, you know, a lot of people have come to the downtown east side with plans to save everyone and it never worked out. But people really liked Bud, he was one of them. So they're like, okay, we'll try it. So it began. The homeless people started doing these, these patrols where they would look out for each other and they would call ambulances if there was a problem. And over the next three months, the death toll on the downtown east side massively fell. And obviously that was a great thing because it meant people who would have died were living. But it also meant the people who, who lived there, the homeless people who lived there, started to say, maybe we're not the pieces of shit everyone says we are. Maybe, maybe we can do something. So Bud went to the library on the downtown east side. There's a very good library there. And he started to read about drug policy. He's like, okay, what else could we do? And he learned that in Frankfurt, in Germany, they had opened what we would now call an overdose prevention site which is or a supervised injection room, it used to be called, which is where if you've got an addiction problem, you go and you can use your drugs while being monitored by a nurse who gives you clean needles and obviously will check that you're okay, offer you help, and if you start to overdose, we'll help you. And that this had almost ended deaths from overdosing in Frankfurt. So Bud was like, great, we'll persuade our politicians to do that. There had been nothing like this in North America in 70 years, right? In the, since the 70 years when the drug war began. Bud was like, Okay, we'll get together, we'll persuade our mayor. The mayor of Vancouver at the time was a, a right-wing politician called Philip Owen, who ran for office saying all the local drug addicts should be taken to the big military base at Chilliwack and never let out. He ran a campaign of aggressive crackdowns on homeless people and on addicted people. He was a very unlikely person to be persuaded, right? He was a, he was a kind of, how would you describe Philip? He was like a... He wasn't like Trump, but he was like kind of entitled rich guys from a very rich family, never known anyone with an addiction problem. But Bud and the other addicts were like, okay, we'll persuade him. So they, they developed this tactic. They, they built a coffin and they wrote on the coffin, who will die next, Philip Owen, before you open a safe injection site? And they started to follow him everywhere he went in public with this coffin. Every time Philip Owen spoke in public and took questions, one of them would stand up and say, who will die next, Philip Owen, before you open a safe injection site? One time, Dean Wilson, who was one of the campaigners, stood up and said, do you remember Julia, who asked you last time, who will die next, Philip Owen, before you open a safe injection site? Well, it turned out to be her, because you haven't done it yet. And this went on for years. They did increasing levels of public awareness. Um, they put uh, this place called Oppenheimer Park in Vancouver, and they placed a cross in Oppenheimer Park for every person who had died of an overdose. There were more than a thousand crosses. Um, and one day, eternally to his credit, Philip Owen said, who the fuck are these people? What is this? <laughs> and, and, he, and he decided to learn about drug policy. So he went to Chicago and he met Milton Friedman, the Nobel Prize winning economist who was very good on this issue. He learned all about it. He came back and he spent a week just hanging out with addicted people on the downtown east side. He'd never known anyone like them. He thought they were people who partied too hard, indulged themselves. Suddenly he's meeting like, you know, people who were raped by their dad from when they were eight. He, it just blew his mind. And Philip Owen held a press conference and he said, okay, everyone, here's what we're gonna do. 
we're going to open the first supervised injection site in the history of North America. Sitting next to him, he had the coroner, the chief of police, and a representative of the addicts. He said, I will never speak about addiction again without having these guys here with me. We are going to have the most compassionate drug policies in North America. Just you wait and see. Things are changing around here. And they set in motion the opening of the supervised injection site. And Philip Owen's right-wing party was so horrified, they deselected him as their candidate and his entire political career ended. But the next mayor, Larry Campbell, opened the site. And as a result, deaths on the downtown east side fell by, by overdose fell by 80%. And average life expectancy rose by 10 years. You only really get figures like that at the end of a war, which is indeed what this was. And I remember when I went to go and see Philip Owen, he said to me, I would sacrifice my entire political career all over again. How many times do you get to save the lives of thousands of really vulnerable people? And Bud, the guy who started all this, my friend who had been homeless for a long time, um, Bud died uh, five years ago. And he was only in his early 60s, but it, you know, he'd been homeless at the height of a drug war. It takes a really big toll on you. And when he died, they shut off the, seat, the streets of the downtown east side. They sealed them off, and they had this incredible memorial service. And there were lots of people there who knew that they were only alive because of what Bud had started, right? Um, in fact, the right-wing government of uh, Stephen Harper tried to shut down the safe injection site. He was fortunately beaten by the hottest man in the world, Justin Trudeau. But when they, uh, when they were trying to shut it down, it was appealed all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Canadian Supreme Court ruled that people with addiction problems have a right to life, and that means a right to a safe injection site. And that will never be taken away now, right? So I think about that story, and I think about how brave Bud was, right? The, the courage of in such a chaotic environment saying, you know, let's have some hope. Let's do something that might help. And then the courage of fighting for years when it looked hopeless, when people said there was no way you were going to persuade Philip Owen. And the courage of Philip Owen to do the right thing, right? And this, to me, I find so fascinating because he was the most unlikely person to do the right thing. And, you know, I often say in relation to addiction, we should never write off anyone. But equally, just in life, you should never write off anyone, right? There's a great line in the movie, The Philadelphia Story, the time to make your mind up about someone is never, right? You never fucking know. Who would have thought Mike Pence, a disgusting, homophobic, vile prick of a human being, would, uh, who sucked up to Trump relentlessly, would when it really, when we needed him most, would take a stand for American democracy and the defense of the republic, which he did. And I still hate him for all the other stuff. And I honor him for that moment. You never fucking know who's going to be brave. And you're never going to know who's going to do the right thing. You never know when you'll be brave or when you'll be cowardly. And we all have that capacity in us. So when I think about bravery, I think about people like Bud and Philip Owen. And so many, I, mean, I could tell you a thousand stories about brave, or Andrew Sullivan, so many brave people I've known. Um, and, and it makes me think about Millicent Fawcett. Well, courage calls to er courage everywhere. Everyone, uh, everyone listening, next time you're wondering if you've got bravery in you, you know, think about Bud. He didn't sit there thinking, you know, someone else is going to have to solve this problem, right? He started where he stood. It's hard to think of a more powerless person in our culture than a homeless guy with an addiction problem. What did he do? He started where he stood and he persuaded the people around him. Because when you have got nothing else, you've got a voice. You've got 
a human voice that you can use to persuade the people around you, and that is the most precious thing anyone can have. Hmm. I'll offer you another example. Um, you've inspired me to write a mini book of my own called wow. How to Stop Fucking Away Your Feelings and Meet the Love of Your Life. And wow. in the spirit of courage being contagious, um, I want to loop in a couple of things here. One is your new book, your new work on attention and the role of the device in the phone. But in relation to addiction, in particular, the idea of or what I would consider a lie around sex addiction and in relation to individuals versus collective responsibility. So there's there's some tension that, that you've laid out between um, folks who would argue, hey, it's your job, it's your phone, put the apps away, put it away, lock it in your box, right? Versus there being some social or political responsibility for the container we're all in, the, the environment that affects our, our actions. And so I guess just, just, just very briefly, um, one thing I want to offer, and I'm curious about your thoughts on this as well, is I've unpacked a little, I think, this lie, this, I think, homophobic conspiratorial lie, which is uh, gay men are biologically wired not for monogamy or are biologically wired for sex addiction or, or the like. And what I've, what I've thought through, and this also goes back to your notion of like reading and historical context in, in informing your kind of independence of mind, is 30 years ago, one in, one in 10 gay men was dying of AIDS. 20 years ago, gay sex in America was criminalized. 10 years ago, marriage was illegal. So we have a historical context upon which this like edifice of beliefs, of premises is built on. So that when you have a gay man uh, operating today, they still might be running on autopilot a set of beliefs or premises from decades past. Some internalized homophobic social conditioning from a millennia-old dehumanization that equates a gay man as a homosexual with an emphasis on the sexual. And so I am so inspired by and drawn by your emphasis on um, the lie around addiction. And I think... Uh, in particular, the lie around sex addiction, particularly for gay men. And I'm speaking about the vast preponderance of non-clinical, non-pathological cases. And I guess the last quick preface on this, on this note I'll say is that when you unpack some of these thoughts and beliefs, what you get to, and this is what I see also in my work with people, right? You start with people who come in with, let's say, uh, they're being held back at work or in some leadership endeavor or in a business or whatever their professional aspiration, which then boils down to an overeating or over drinking problem, which then boils down to to some kind of sex problem they're identifying, right? Which then boils down to fundamentally a belief, I will die alone or I won't be loved. And just seeing this pattern over and over and over again, I'm like, this is all wrong. We don't have an over fucking problem. We have an under feeling problem. We have, and this in part is the unintended byproduct of this hyper-therapeutic culture that says a negative emotion is a problem to be solved, to be fixed. Shame is a problem. Sadness is a problem. And what I see is when people buffer, avoid, numb away the feeling of sadness or shame, that's when the urge for sex, for phone sex, again, integrating the sort of addiction with the attention component, comes to play. And so it both has nothing to do with willpower. 
and has no nothing to do with some biological or chemical or physical addiction or predisposition. And it just has everything to do with learning to process an emotion. Name it, label it, describe the physical sensations that are emotions. So one last quick on prelude to I'm curious to hear your thoughts on. Um, I wanted to offer um, a slight addition, I think, to what I see to be your, your thesis or a big value contribution that you've, you've brought into the world around connection, right, being uh, the answer to addiction. And what I'm curious about is I think it's not just connection to others. I think first and foremost, it's connection to ourselves. And in fact, what I've seen is a lot of the buffering, a lot of the avoidance of processing emotions comes in the form of assuming the external validation, the approval, the joy, the happiness we seek comes from others. Our people pleasing, our like worth and sense of lovability comes from the approval of others. So I'm in full agreement and just wanted to offer the connection piece, I think also first and foremost, comes from connection or disconnection from ourselves and the assumption that others can solve for that. So would that like be prelude? <laughs> no, I think there's lots of things in what you just said, Jonathan. So I'm thinking about it. I mean, I think in a way, and there's loads of things in what you just said that are really interesting. Um, so I, there's lots of ways I could respond to it. I mean, I think partly when we think about sort of sex addiction, I think it helps to distinguish I mean, this, one of the things I learned writing my book about addiction, Chasing the Scream, is we, we, there's so many deep misconceptions about addiction. Indeed, you know, I misunderstood the addiction I've seen play out all my life since I was a child in my family. Um, I think there's a real truth in what you're saying. That the core of addiction is about not wanting to be present in your life because your life is too painful a place to be. So addiction is addictive behavior as a way of not being present with your pain. Um, and addiction can be, and that, that's true of, you know, that could be crack, that could be pornography, that could be gambling, whatever it might be. Um, so I think that, I think it's important to distinguish between, um, think about it in relation to drugs, right? Going to any bar tonight and 90% of the people there will be drinking alcohol because it's fun, they have a good time. They enjoy it, it helps them relax, flirt with someone, whatever they want to do. And, you know, there'll be 10% who, for complicated reasons, largely due to internal pain and unmet psychological needs, will have a, an alcohol addiction problem. And that actually, that ratio, it's a little bit higher for some other drugs, but actually, the, with all drugs, the majority of the use of that drug is not addictive. I was kind of surprised by this, but um, the scientific evidence for it is very clear. People like Professor Carl Hart... Uh, Columbia University so clearly wasn't the experience of my family that took me a while to absorb that but that is that is true so I would say um, in terms of what you're talking about which is um, you know hypersexualization right or you know people who just fuck a lot of people there'll be I would say most of that will be you know people just enjoying themselves and it's a healthy thing and you know and then there'll be a subset who are engaging in that behavior compulsively in order to avoid being present with their own lives, in order to, to avoid, um, avoid intimacy, you know, all sorts of things that they could be doing to, to, to engage. I'm quite, and I'm pretty sure everyone listening 
will know lots of people who have sex all the time and really enjoy it and they'll also know a fair few people who use sex in that unhealthy or, or uh, numbing way um so i think i think um sex addiction is from my point of view can be a real thing certainly can be a real thing and that any 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 um behavior that leads to a lack of presence can can uh, be the object of an addiction the, the key thing is to understand the underlying addiction that the that the addictive behavior is a symptom right what's the underlying problem um so I, I, I would um but i think if what you're saying is that there's a kind of narrative that gay men are inherently primed to sex addiction that that's just wrong right i think it probably is true that i don't know and this is a one of those views that's sort of just a hunch where I, I don't know how you could prove this, but I suspect it's probably true that um, men want to fuck a lot and uh, not all men, but a lot, a lot of men. And that probably, I mean, is it purely a coincidence that gay men seem to be significantly less monogamous than lesbians? And I don't know. In a way, I don't really care. It, 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 um, there are definitely aspects of gay culture, in terms of that thing you're saying about connection. Um, so, uh, you know, I said in my TED talk, this thing that's kind of gone quite viral, which is the opposite of addiction is connection, right? And it's interesting because a lot of people, I know you're not doing this, but a lot of people interpreted that quite narrowly as me saying, oh, um, you know, that means connection to other people. But then people would entirely understandably say, well, but I had an addiction when I had loads of friends, right? I had loads of, you know, I had people I could draw on. And I always meant connection in a much wider way, which is why my book Lost Connections is, 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 is balanced. So everyone listening knows they have natural physical needs. Obviously, you need food, you need water, you need shelter, you need clean air. If I took those things away from you, you'd be in real trouble real fast. But there's equally strong evidence that all human beings have natural psychological needs. You need to feel you belong. You need to feel your life has meaning and purpose. You need to feel that people see you and value you. You need to feel you've got a future that makes sense. And our culture is good at lots of things. I'm glad to be alive today, particularly as a gay man. But we've been getting less and less good at meeting these deep, underlying psychological needs for people. Um, and that leads to many problems. It leads to uh, depression, it leads to addiction. These are not the only factors that produce that. Of course, it's more complicated than that. But I think it's the primary driver. It's why we have staggering, what well, we literally have the highest level of overdose deaths in the history of the American Republic in, in the last year. Um, so I think when you see it from this prism of unmet psychological needs, you begin to understand a lot of, um, a lot of why there is a, a disproportionate amount of this compulsive behavior among gay men, right? Um, a lot of gay people have distorted senses of self due to homophobia, they have uh, trauma, all sorts, of, all sorts of issues. I also think gay people are, and I, I, there's been no research on this particular aspect of whether gay people are disproportionately prone to this, but I suspect it's the case. One of the aspects that I write about in Lost Connections one of the I write about there's these nine the scientific evidence for nine causes of depression and anxiety, only two of which are biological. There are real biological contributions, but they go much wider than our biology. Um, and one of them is what I call junk values. So 
everyone knows that junk food has taken over our diets and made us physically sick, but there's a kind of evidence, there's evidence that a kind of junk values have taken over our minds and made us mentally sick. For thousands of years, philosophers have said, if you think life is about money and status and how you look and showing off, you're gonna feel like shit, right? It's not an exact quote from like Confucius, but that is basically what he said. But weirdly, nobody had ever scientifically investigated this until an incredible man I, I got to know well called Professor Tim Kasser, who's at Knox College in Illinois, just retired. And he did years of research on this, more than 30 years. He discovered lots of things, but the most important thing for the purpose of this is he discovered that philosophers were right. The more you think life is about status and money and showing off, the kind of values that are inculcated in you by advertising and Instagram and everything like them, the more likely you are to be anxious and unhappy by a really significant amount. I think because those junk values train you to seek happiness in all the wrong places, right? It's a kind of, it's almost like a kind of KFC for the soul, right? Everyone listening knows they're not gonna lie on their deathbed and think about how many shoes they bought and how many likes they got for that picture on Instagram of their abs looking really good, right? You're gonna think about moments of love and meaning and connection in your life. But we live in, as Professor Kasser put it to me, we live in a machine that is designed to get us to neglect what is important about life, where we're trained to what, to what I think of as these junk values rather than meaningful values. We're trained to seek meaning in Instagram likes and our external appearance. It's really interesting, so as you know, for Stolen Focus, I, my, my most recent book about our attention crisis, why so many of us are struggling to focus and pay attention, I spent uh, three months in, in Provincetown, which is a gay town, right, and a completely amazing place. I love Provincetown. Um, I got in trouble recently. I don't know how obscene I can be on your podcast. Cut me out if, if this is too obscene, but I got in trouble on an Australian podcast the other day because they have this uh, a surf town called Byron Bay, which is uh, kind of beautiful. I've been there, kind of beautiful surf, surf town. And they said to me, how would you explain to um, an Australian what Provincetown is? And I said, well, if you picture Byron Bay with less surfing and more fisting, you've basically got the idea. Um, but th it was fascinating being in Provincetown and seeing, and I was in this slightly weird position in Provincetown because basically there's two kinds of gay men who are in Provincetown for the whole summer. There's rich gays who are basically 50 and older. Uh, and then there's young gays who are like the servant class there to wait on the rich gays, right? And I was in this weird sort of slightly anomalous position of being, uh, having enough money to be there because one of my books got made into a movie for so having enough money to be there for the whole summer, but being neither one of the kind of rich Uber gays or the sort of twink servant gays. So it was fascinating to kind of observe the kind of gay ecology of it. But it was so interesting when you would get these guys, so there would be, they have themed weekends in, in Provincetown, like, um, circuit weekends and bear week bear week and things like that where you, people descend on it um and it was fascinating seeing particularly the kind of circuit week it, how do i put it it was so interesting because you, you, you see there were huge numbers of men who looked exactly the same it was kind of weird they really all had the same body right which is a very good and attractive body i don't want to diss it um but you could see how much of their lives it seemed to me, and look, anyone who's happy, I'm happy for them. It seemed to me that an enormous amount of their self-esteem was invested in a very, the achievement of a very narrow and particular kind of body that did not seem to me to be working well for them. And that, not that the body wasn't working well, but 
that the achievement of that body type didn't seem to be meeting their underlying, underlying psychological needs. Um, and it seemed to me, I don't want to overstate that, there were lots of people there who were very happy, having a great time, looked great, all credit to them. But I think in gay culture, our obsession with a very kind of narrow body type and investing so much in how we look. I mean, I have to say this is never, I've had many issues in my life, I've never been drawn to thinking that way, partly because I sort of couldn't really, I, it's just not, I'm, I don't think I could look like that even if I wanted to. Um, but I do think that is a kind of junk value, right? It's different to the junk value of wanting to be just ostentatiously rich. It's different, although not unrelated, to the junk value of just wanting lots of likes on Instagram. But I do think it's a junk value. I do think it's seeking happiness in the wrong places. I'm not saying that being fit isn't good. It's great. Um, I'm not saying that you know having a significant part of your life dedicated towards fitness isn't a good thing. It is. But it seemed to me to be sort of more narrow and fetishistic in a, in a lot of that culture. And of course, I've seen it in gay culture and other parts of the world as well. Does that ring true to you, Jonathan? I've just had a lot of brain dump in response to what you said. No, 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 this is, this is great. Um, I think one thing that came to my mind uh, based on what you said was, I think there is this um, like predominant lie. And I use the word lie just as like an evocative uh, word. And I think one, one uh, sort of background framework is like a therapy versus coaching framework. And um, therapy tends to focus on like the psychological needs and also looks at how other people, for instance, in relationships are, can, can meet those needs. Um, and I think what I found so transformative in the coaching realm, which is not as mainstream, is not as not um, establishment sort of recognized, is it suggests very simply, and it also you know harkens back to as you said you know ancient Confucian philosophy, ancient Chinese philosophy. You are not your thoughts. Your thoughts create your feelings. Your feelings create your actions, and your actions create your results. And so when you offer, for example, in the context of addiction and connection, um, people need to be seen, people need to be heard. Again, you are so like uh, evolved in, in your thinking on this compared to the vast preponderance. But what I think is um, valuable on top or in addition to that is to sit with the possibility that we create the experience of feeling heard. We create the experience for ourselves of feeling seen. And this, I think, lies in the tension between, for instance, the like near all approach to like indistractable, put your phone away, be the boss of yourself, total sovereignty, right? Versus total collective action of like, let's ban the social media business model and ensure they can't predate on, let's say, uh, gay men and Instagram or on Grindr spending five hours a day on, on the apps. And I've had an interesting interweaving between these, these two ends where I used to think exclusively in the context of like social change and collective action. That was in the, you know, uh, my involvement in the presidential campaign and going for a basic income and having this sort of institutional structural framework for the kind of life, uh, uh, kind of good life that one might want. And I realized that it takes strong individuals to create that social change. And that the people, uh, the, the historical figures, the, the, the change makers that, that we cite to or we draw inspiration from, like those are humans with a 50-50 life, a 50% negative, a 50% positive emotional life. And I think it, it's sort of drawing from the strengths of both, of 
Like, we both can't sit around and wait as individuals for the collective structural institutional change, say the banning of the business model. And we can be called towards advancing that, that solution. Um, yeah, but I, I guess never, just, yeah, I never, I never understood. I never understand the debate about, is it individual versus collective? Yeah. Just obviously both. Like, I, I just don't get it. And actually, collective action often frees people up to make individual changes, right? The, think about, you know, I, I mean, think about what, what individual choices could we make if there had not been the collective change to decriminalize homosexuality and introduce gay marriage? We would be, if that collective change had not been achieved, we would be individually much less able to make choices to determine our own lives, right? So it, it's a dance, right? Yeah. You fight for more collective liberation, that frees you up to be more individually free. That might mean you then want to be part of another collective fight. Now we can fight for gun safety. We can fight, how safe are you going to be if you get shot tomorrow? Not very, right? Um, so it's just obviously both. <laughs> so I, I always think it's, a, a, it's one of those debates I don't really get because it's obviously yes and <laughs> just obviously in terms of what you said before though about our thoughts create the sense that we're seeing mm. i think there's some truth in that but we don't want to take it too far i mean think about so obviously everyone knows we just lived through a global pandemic and we had um a series of lockdowns as a result now whatever you think about those lockdowns and i was broadly in favor of them I mean, not in every aspect. I spent a lot of the pandemic in Vegas because I'm writing a book about a series of crimes in Vegas. And the fact that the schools were closed for a year and the casinos were open is an insane set of social priority. I mean, deranged set of social priorities. So I'm not in favor of every specific detail of the lockdowns, but I think to spread it, to prevent the spread of an airborne virus, you had to ha limit social contact to some degree, to a significant degree. Um, but that came with a horrific cost. And one was, we saw each other less, and as a result, depression has massively increased, addiction has massively increased, overdose deaths have massively increased. We've got to be honest about that, right? We've got to be able to tolerate complexity, and we've got to be honest that that is a terrible and huge cost. Now, that, that was a literal limiting of people's ability to see each other. I think there's, there's a degree to which changing your psychology can limit the harm of that but it's only a degree, right? There are certain things, I think there's a very, in American culture, we've always had this very deep, um, how would you put it? Um, a strain of what I would think of as almost magical individualism, which is the belief that the individual's thought patterns can overcome anything. So an extreme example would be, what's the name of that woman? Um, the woman who founded Christian, the Christian Science Sect. He said, you know, if you're sick, just pray and the sickness will go away, right? Which has led to many, many deaths, as you can imagine, because it doesn't work. Um, and I think there's a degree to which um, there's a kind of hyper-individualism that American society can promote that just says, well, just think the pain. I mean, you're, you're against fucking the pain away, quite rightly. And there's a danger in a kind of think the pain away. Now, I don't want to overestimate my opposition to that. There are definitely changes in psychology, mindset, and internal cognition that can massively reduce people's pain. I, I, and I'm in favor of psychology and all sorts of ways of altering human thought patterns that can lead to less productive and negative thought patterns. But I think we don't wanna, we don't wanna, I don't think this is what you're doing either, but I think we don't wanna imply, you know, there's a kind of 
it's why I've never really liked Stoicism, as a, although there's some useful insights from Stoicism. I always think it's very revealing that Stoicism, you know, one of the key figures in Stoicism is Marcus Aurelius, who was the fucking emperor. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, if you're the emperor, it's kind of easy to say, well, I'll just think the problems away. I'd like to know if Marcus Aurelius's slaves could think their problems away. I very much doubt it. Not to say that Marcus Aurelius wasn't a great writer, because he undoubtedly was. Also, his statues suggest he was quite hot, so let's not diss him too much. But, yeah, so I'm wary of... I'm sympathetic to that argument to some degree, and I'm wary of taking it too far as the kind of um, headline on that. Totally. And I'm mindful of our time here, but just a quick kind of follow-up yeah, sure, on that is um, I think part of why I find this so transformative and powerful is, like, if you have this sort of helical view of social history, which is, I guess, a modification of the pendulum swinging left to right, or um, where things don't just move backwards and forwards, but we're constantly ascending and maybe revisiting certain familiar parts of our history. In this moment, what I see predominant and coming from these types of institutions, coming from the Harvards of the world, trauma and, you know, and having studied and, and worked with the likes of Jeannie Sue Gerson, who's documented the effects in Jonathan Haidt of what trauma and the idea of trauma is doing to a generation of kids. It is devastating, the unintended byproduct of telling young people today that um, you're being traumatized, microaggressions are traumatized, sure. you are anxious, you are depressed. And I think in this milieu, in this context of everyone has three comorbid diagnoses, everyone has capital T trauma. And um, the idea or the um, revisiting of the old idea that your circumstances, this is a rock, this is a tree, are distinct from your thoughts, I'm alone. Or your thoughts, I'm not going to find love. Or your thoughts, I'm going to, uh, he's, he's judging me. So I would locate that insight in a wider, if you kind of pull back. So almost everyone, um, in theory, not in practice, but almost everyone in theory it, who, who is serious about what we call mental health, I would rather call it emotional health, but what we call mental health, um, agrees with, with something, the kind of fancy term for it is the biopsychosocial model. So what they believe is, think of any mental health condition from uh, mild depression to schizophrenia. We agree that there are three kinds of cause, and to some degree, some differing degree, they will play out in every individual who presents with one of these problems. So they are biological causes, like your genes, real changes in your brain that happen. There's psychological causes, like trauma or the kind of mindset issues that you're talking about. And then there are social causes, like loneliness, financial insecurity. And they all play out to some degree. Now, clearly, bipolar depression, there's a higher biological contribution than with, uh, you know, what we would think of as more mild, normal depression. Uh, schizophrenia, again, it varies. Psychosis, it obviously varies according to the condition and crucially varies according to the individual. Uh, but they're all there to some degree. So I think what you're speaking to, so if that's the biopsychosocial model, I mean, in, it's funny, a guy called Professor Lawrence Kiermeyer at McGill University in Montreal said to me once, in theory, we have a biopsychosocial model. In practice, we have a bio, bio, bio model. Because I'm betting anyone listening who's gone to their doctor with any mental health problem, got told a story about biology and given a load of drugs. Now, sometimes those drugs can help and are really valuable. Sometimes they can be very harmful. We have to 
again, consider it case by case, drug by drug. But um, what you're speaking to is the psychological component, which is very real. Um, and what you're suggesting, some things you're suggesting will, will be helpful with that psychological component. I don't think the psychological component on its own can compensate for the social and the biological, right? That they interact with each other. So um, look, think about something as basic as um, since 1980, uh, there has been an enormous transfer of wealth to the rich and a collapse to the middle class to the point where entering the pandemic before the stimulus checks, um, the average American had $600 or less in savings, right? A majority of Americans had $600 or less in savings. That's that's, you know, one car accident, one problem with your teeth, uh, you know, and you're screwed, right? Um, now, it's no rocket science to explain, although there is a lot of scientific evidence to prove it, that that causes an enormous amount of anxiety, right? Now, that's a real no shit Sherlock, you know, phone your grandma and ask her, do you think being really financially insecure makes you more anxious? <laughs> Why are you fucking wasting my time asking such an obvious question? But what happened is, this enormous increase in anxiety happened as a result in part of just m massive financial insecurity and the collapse of the middle class. And yet people went to their doctor and they were told, oh, well, you've just got a chemical imbalance in your brain. Now, some of those people will have real biological contributions to their depression, to be sure. But when there's a massive social imbalance, to relabel that as a chemical imbalance is, is problematic in my view, right? Uh, and, and takes us away from actually solving the problem, which is you can have a society with a middle class, as we remember, because we used to have one, right? Uh, and many countries in the world still have them. So I don't think you can say um, at its worst, and this is slightly, and this is definitely not what you're doing, but if you think about, it's probably the two people I most associated with it are such evil people that it loads the card to mention them, but Bill Cosby and Bill O'Reilly, set aside the fact that they're both disgusting sexual predators for a second. So their argument about poverty uh, was was for a long time. Well, um, in Bill Cosby's case, look, I overcame it, right? Pull your, pull your pants up, get to work. Don't tell me there's these social problems, right? Now, most people know when applied to poverty, that, that, that's grossly, that, that individualistic model is hugely oversimplified, right? It's not that poor people don't advance because they're lazier or morally, more morally flawed than, than anyone else, obviously. Um, so I think we want to be careful about that kind of hyper-individualism that um, can end up being kind of victim-blaming. Now, that's not to say we throw the baby out with the bathwater and don't talk about psychology and don't talk about what people can do to change their thought patterns. Absolutely, we should talk about them. That's really valuable. I just don't think we should... It's not the solution. It's one complex thing in a big menu that needs to be part of the solution, is how I would slightly pompously put it. I'm sorry for mentioning Bill Cosby. I feel slightly nauseous now. <laughs> <laughs> well, Johan, um, this is quoting you from somewhere. You said, I think this was in relation to gayness. And we can see, because we've lived through it once, that a better world is possible wherever we decide to choose it. So maybe in some circumstances, our thoughts do create our results. Oh, 100%, look, you have to change your thoughts in order to lead to action. Of course, you don't, there's no action without thought, right? So of course, but, but there's two steps in that. Let's, let's change our thoughts so we can act, right? Yeah. It, changing the thought on its own, I mean, can be valuable, right? But, but um, and if you think about the biopsychosocial model, I remember 
having an argument with Joe Rogan about this on his podcast. I really like Joe having kind of a thoughtful argument about this with him. I think different people just are temperamental. Different people have different temperaments when it comes to this, right? So some people are very much oriented towards individual change, like changing the isolated individual. And some people are very oriented towards collective social change. Some people are oriented towards biological um, ways of thinking about it. And they're all true to some degree, right? That's the, the biopsychosocial model honors the complexity of those three and they, of course, interact. And look, my temperament is always, come on guys, let's change this shit, we can do it, right? But that is not to um, belittle the, the, the biological and psychological contributions, which are, are very, very real. And certainly you don't get, look, Bud, you think about my friend Bud or think about Andrew in Provincetown in 1994, they had to challenge their sense of self in order to mm -hmm. do those things, right? And right. they had to challenge their sense. Andrew had, has written beautifully about, I mean, a fantastic book he wrote called Love Undetectable about overcoming his own sense of yeah. homophobia. The first thing he thought when he got his HIV diagnosis was, I deserve this, right? Mm -hmm. So you think about the homophobia, internal, internalized homophobia he had to overcome. Or Bud saying, well, I'm just a homeless junkie. What can I do? He had to challenge right. that right. sense of himself so yeah changing and we've all everyone will have negative self-perceptions and negative internal dialogue sometimes where you think oh i'm not good enough for this or i can't do this or i'm not good enough or um so we all have that and we all have to overcome it and and um there are all sorts of ways to to, to challenge that and overcome it that are hugely not just valuable but necessary for a good a good life and also as you kind of alluded to also you know, it's another thing we, we do in the US is seeing all negativity is bad. It's not. We're all flawed. And, you know, sometimes you should feel bad about your flaws. And that's okay. And that's not some, you know, thing to be overcome. Bad, feeling bad sometimes is a necessary part of life, right? Um, and, and not everything is a hill to be conquered. Some things are just sources of sadness to be endured or, or, or to be owned. So I think, again, it, it's, it, yeah, there's, there's, we've got to be true to the complexity of all of these, uh, of, of, of being human. <laughs> that, I think yeah. that's a very bland, big statement, but, you know, we, I really believe it. And we, we live in an age of such insane oversimplification and, and pointless arguments between where people will pit against each other two things that are obviously true and entirely compatible, you know? And it's partly because we're being, you know, the design of social media at the moment is, is literally designed to make us angry at each other, as I write about in my book, Stolen Focus. It doesn't have to be that way and we can change them. But yeah, so yeah, I'll stop talking now because that's a long answer. No, I, I think we're in vigorous agreement. Um, <laughs> my final thought of this, and then I want to, um, if you have any thoughts, questions, things you want to share, where people can find your work and buy all of your incredible books and stay in touch with you and your latest thoughts in your new book, is I think what I'm getting at is sort of narrowly like you as an example, right? And you offered the example of Andrew and of Bud, of like for you to take the action of putting out your work, of having a heterodox view and sharing it with the world, right? Of reinventing yourself, of like you showing up as you took you not making your circumstances, right? You could paint a totally different story, tell a totally different picture of Johan from his youth, right? And what that implies for Johan's life. 
but you chose, either implicitly or explicitly, consciously, unconsciously, you chose to build this life as a leader, to show up in a way to enable social change. The individuals, the empowered individuals, create that social change. And you're one example of that in terms of what's possible. You know, that this isn't false modesty. That's really not how I think of myself. Um, I'm definitely, uh, and I would, I, would, I would resist that description, um, which is not an, oh no, not me. Um, it, that, that's not actually my job. So my, when I feel good about my job, uh, it's when I think of myself as a concierge between people who need to know something and people who've, dis and people who've discovered it, right? So I think about um, Bruce Alexander, who did a crucial experiment about addiction called Rat Park, which I can explain, but if people just look up my TED talk, they can, they can hear me talk about it, which is an experiment that was done in the 1970s that transformed how we think about addiction. And one of the things I'm most proud of in my life is that I've played a role in hugely popularizing that experiment. It was known about before, but I've hugely popularized it. So I learned about it. I got to know Bruce, who's a wonderful human being. And there are lots of people with addiction problems or people who love people with addiction problems who needed to know what that experiment has revealed. And there's a moment for me in all of my books, and it usually starts about a month after the book has come out. And it's when people I've written about email me and say, oh, people are emailing me because they've read your book. And to me, that is the most satisfying thing because you mm -hmm. think, oh, I got to introduce you to Bruce. What an amazing man who discovered this incredible thing. And you needed to know that about what he discovered. So, and I'm not, this is not saying there's not a role for people to be leaders. There absolutely is. And I honor people, being a leader is a hard thing, right? And I honor people who can do it well. Although Lao Tzu said, um, the best leaders, when they do their job, the people say, we did it ourselves, which I think is absolutely the good model of leadership. But so that's that's not my job. I honor people who are leaders. I have friends who I regard as leaders. Uh, you mentioned Barry before. I think she's a, she's a good example of someone who is temperamentally a leader and is good at it. That, that really isn't my job. I'm not saying that I don't do a useful job. I do. I, I'd like to think I do. But so I've been a, yeah. So I want to give you the last word. But the reason I'm going to like fight you on this a little bit <laughs> with with all the love in the world and i fought evan wolfson on this who came on recently he was the architect of gay marriage when he wrote his law school thesis in yeah, 1983 amazing. and and is you know similar humility and i i understand all of it but the reason why it's important for me to call this out is so we don't have a misattribution right and a lot of people who've done fucking incredible things and said the unspeakable thing or done the courageous thing will have a similar pattern of like humility or like, oh, it's not me, it's them, right? But I think like it's important to have like an accurate um, telling of the thoughts that made what you do possible. But it is, of, it is but Jonathan, I would think about Bob. So right? that others can do it too, right? Like in the spirit of empowering others, of, yeah, of creating yes, that social change. Absolutely, but think about so there's two ways of communicating social change. I think of them as, I mean, there's lots of ways, but you can think of it as the heroic individual model, right? Um, so I mentioned Millicent Fawcett, the woman who has the statue outside the House of Commons, courage calls to courage everywhere. Now, Millicent Fawcett was one of thousands and thousands of women, right? She is a symbol. She was unusually brave, but she was one of thousands of women. I mentioned Andrew. If Andrew was one person, we would never have had gay marriages because millions of people joined that fight. Like, and indeed, Evan was one of the other great pioneers of that. Or think about Bud 
and Philip Owen. The danger is, if we tell the story of the heroic individual who did it, um, in, it the danger is that actually disempowers people. You know, there's a, there, if you've ever seen that film, what it's called, it's not a very good movie. Um, I couldn't sleep recently and I, I, I caught the end of it. I'd seen it before. It's a film about the assassination of President Kennedy, who, by the way, was a terrible person, but let's set that aside. And there's a scene at the, although he did some good things and some absolutely terrible things, but there's a scene um, after he's been shot and after his brother Bobby Kennedy's been shot much later in 1968, where someone says, oh, Bobby's dead, Jack's dead, Dr. King is dead, there's no one left. And you want to go, you want to scream at the screen, yes, there is, there's fucking all of you. <laughs> Everyone else is left, right? It, it, so the danger is, if you build these heroic narratives, it, it, gives, it, creates, it creates a sense of political passivity. Actually, it's like, well, where is the Messiah who will come to save us? And you know that famous line Maya Angelou said, we've got to be the people we're waiting for. The, right. you, 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 the danger with telling heroic narratives about individuals, and there are heroic individuals, clearly there are heroic individuals in the world, and, and you know, but the heroic individual is always, in my view, almost always, an individual who catalyzes wider groups of people I think the heroic individual is in each of us. And that's the sort of like historical, like right, left conflation and the confusion, right? Is like, is it's not there's the Messiah. It's not there's the savior outside of us. It's there's the savior within. It's there's the Messiah within. It's there's the capacity for heroism in each of us, in the yes, millions of us. Yes, but I guess it's about saying to people, know where your power lies which is your power lies in connecting with large numbers of other people. The truth is, you as an isolated individual have very little power. That's leadership. I think that's, yeah. I mean, I think but, we're saying the same thing in different ways, maybe. I, I guess it, it's, partly, it, it's partly about, to me, leadership is about, Gandhi said the, the, the challenge is to, um, the first act of leadership is, is to make the injustice visible, right? Um, and that's partly what they did in Vancouver, you know, putting all those crosses in Oppenheimer Park, a thousand overdose deaths sounds very abstract, but a thousand crosses in the main park in Vancouver, go, fuck, that's a lot of people who died, right? So I think there's lots of things about, about, about this, but, but I guess what I would say is that people who are frightened about the state of the United States at the moment, I am really, really worried. Um, I, I think it is not inconceivable that we're going to have a some kind of civil war. It, this is a really dangerous moment. Um, people who are frightened of that, I would just say, you're not going to be saved by leaders. You're going to be saved by all of us, right? Right. All it's, of us have to do the right thing. Yes. And so I think this is, um, again, I think we're in vigorous agreement. But I think <laughs> like there's like, like, the reaction to the sort of like far right authoritarian, like the embodiment in the in the monarch or in the in the strongman, and then there's the sort of left reaction of like in, in the form of the collective and like the de-individuation. And what I'm suggesting is the possibility of like there's no teleology, there's no inevitability, there's no inevitable <laughs> arc to history to any of it, yeah. right? And that like. That, that heroism, that, so leadership to me is the courage to do or say what others won't. And that includes, yes, inspiring others to action, calling others, being part of leadership is knowing who and when to follow. 
And I think like drawing a more capacious wide net for what constitutes leadership, in my view, like empowers people to see how there is no inevitable march to civil war or to Trump 24 or to any of it. And one concrete example is like I've been I was in the room like there were five humans who built like the Yang presidential campaign in the early days, like five years ago. And I've been in the room where it happens for like how the halls of power in the United States, which in the world order, right, from the classrooms of Harvard Law School to like the, the fields of Iowa to the, to the debate stage. And like, they're just humans. It's everything and it's nothing. It's 50-50. And like, they're, they're, they're no different from you and me. It's just the humans who have the belief, I can do something about this. I'm the one to lead. So. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And I think, I mean, the, the, the changes that I admire most, like the gay rights struggle, the struggle for equality for gay people, the struggle for liberation for women, um, also the movement for uh, to end the drug war that's happening all over the world that I've, I know so many of the people who've been part of, and that obviously in the movement to take on the forces that are damaging our attention, uh, really corroding our ability to focus and pay attention. Yeah, I mean, I think we agree. I think we agree. <laughs> I'm just saying, you know, you're you're whether you want to acknowledge it or I had, not. <laughs> I had this funny experience. I had a horrific and chilling experience about four or five months ago. That really, it's funny. It's funny how often it's small moments that really chill you. Um, I went to see a I went to see a Barry Manilow concert at the Westgate in Vegas because my friend wanted to go. She'd had a rough year, so I took her. It was actually amazing. It was completely. I'd never. It was the gayest thing I've ever done, and I included that all the times I have had sex with men. Um, but there was this moment before that really threw me. So I cannot think of a less political event than a than a Barry Manilow concert, right? If anything, you'd think it'd skew a bit liberal because it's gays and women, right? About this was just after the whole "Let's Go Brandon" thing had gone viral. You remember this? Mm -hmm. um, and about 10 minutes before it started, someone starts chanting, let's go, Brandon, let's go, Brandon. And about five to 10% of the audience joined in. And then someone yells, Trump 2024. And loads of people clapped. And I could see the woman next to me, not my friend who was the other side, was quite uncomfortable. And I said to her, hey, shall we, uh, shall we start a pro-Biden chant? And she looked at me and she said, I'd like to, but what would we say? And my heart fucking, it's like the moment in the horror movie when Freddy Krueger's hand shoots out from the grave and you're like, okay, here we are. <laughs> I was just like, oh my God. It was, yeah, I never expected to have existential despair at a Barry Manilow concert. And even Copacabana did not cure my despair. So yeah, but, but I'm not despairing because we can put it right, but it's, it's, it's very sobering. Johan, so fun connecting with you, hearing from you. I'm so glad you. I got to end a gay podcast with a Barry Manilow story. I feel like I, I mean all of it. I it's feel just fully such a gay. Joy. I've never felt um, more gay. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Um, give us the download. We'll include it in the show notes, but folks can buy your books. I had, really, I had a funny experience yeah. with um, yeah on a podcast maybe uh, two years ago now, uh, where I was interviewed by a 50 year old guy. It's relevant what age he was. Yeah. And at the end, he said, 
so where can we find out about your work? And I yeah, so, it's a so must. My, so my main website is called it's j o h a n n h a r i dot com. Mm-hmm. Uh, then my most recent book is stolenfocusbook.com and on the book's website you can find out what Oprah and lots of other people have said about the book but um, he said so what's your Twitter and I said it and he said what's your Facebook and I said it and mm-hmm. he said what's your Instagram and I said it mm-hmm. <laughs> and he said what's your Snapchat and I said I am a 43 year old man the only 43 year old men on Snapchat are definitely pedophiles right and he didn't laugh and I have this very bad habit of when someone doesn't laugh at one of my jokes leading into it so I said the next season of To Catch a Predator, you know that show where they basically catfish pedophiles. As of the next season of To Catch a Predator, they should just go up to adult men in the street and say, what is your Snapchat profile? And if they have one, immediately arrest them, right? Anyway, he didn't laugh. Later on, I looked it up and he does have quite a big Snapchat presence. So my goal now for all interviews is to not accuse the interviewer of being a pedophile at any point. So I'm very glad, Jonathan. That we've got through well, this without you have hit all the third rails at every point so congratulations <laughs> to you so you can if you yeah com. you can if you go to stolenfocusbook.com you can listen for free to the audio of loads of the people i interviewed um you can see where to get the audio book the ebook or the physical book um they give me a fucking script i meant to say i can't i can never say it it makes me sound like an absolute twat but um the um yes you can find out what oprah elton john Hillary Clinton and many other people have said about my work. Um, yes, hooray. Johan, congratulations and thank you. Oh, thank you. For your leadership, for your courage. Ah! <laughs> for, I know, sit with it, I know. And for just like being you. Oh, hooray. Thank you, Jonathan. What lovely questions. That was really interesting. I enjoyed it. It's been a pleasure. JohanHari.com. Go get it. Go read it. Go listen. Take care. Cheers. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, you have to check out The Gay Man's Life Coach at jonathanherzogcoach.com. It is the community of gay men transforming their lives to feel better and get exactly what they want. Join us at jonathanherzogcoach.com and book a one-on-one consult today. And if you have one minute, it would be so awesome if you could leave a review on this podcast so we can help spread the word and help more gay men. See you soon.